0: we are not the social agents that modernity in in, in inspires or thinks us to be that's only a, a that's like a pixel pretending to be the entire screen we're not the isolated forms of enactment's or agency or, or doings that we think we are
1: welcome to entangled world where we explore our interrelated existential social, economic, ecological, and technological challenges, their underlying drivers, and how a more beautiful world might emerge. I'm your host, Nadia Shawkat Lapsan. I'm a daughter of Pakistani Muslim immigrants, a mom, and an inter-systems thinker. Join me on a journey to discover what is uniquely and meaningfully ours to do at this pivotal moment in time, in service to the sacredness of life. My guest today is Bio Akomalafe. Bio is rooted with the Yoruba people in a more-than-human world, is the father to Alethea and Kea, the grateful life partner to EJ, son and brother. He's a widely celebrated international post-humanist thinker, poet, teacher, public intellectual, essayist, and author of two books— These Wilds Beyond Our Fences, Letters to My Daughter on Humanity's Search for Home, and We Will Tell Our Own Story, The Lions of Africa Speak. Bio is also the founder of the Emergence Network and host of the post-activist course, festival, and event called We Will Dance with Mountains. This is a conversation about becoming. We discuss the gifts of disruption and the shackles of belonging. Bio says we need to disbelong in order to become bodies, that disruption is how the world feels into itself. We talk about the challenges with parenting and how our children are our greatest teachers. What if we treated our children as cosmic disruptions? We talk about racial inequality and what's wrong with efforts to, quote, bring marginalized people to the tables of power, end quote. Because it still requires you to fit within the existing power regime, within the existing way of being. While we don't discuss the meta-crisis in specific in this conversation all that much, everything we talk about is very much relevant to how we show up to do the work of addressing the meta crisis. In fact, this conversation is all about the how we do the work, which is just as important as the what we do. For those of us that are parents, in particular, working to address our greatest global challenges, I think this is a conversation you will love. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you do, please subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app, or subscribe to the Entangled World Pod youtube channel bio thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast i am so excited to talk with you you are a truly gifted writer and speaker i've read much of your work many of your essays your beautiful book these wilds beyond our fences i've listened to many talks that you've given that are posted on youtube and i encourage everyone to go check out as many of them as you can, because there's always something different I get from each one. And yeah, your work has just shifted things in me in ways that I think are still percolating. I'm very grateful and I'm very excited to, to talk to you today. And to begin, I just wanted to know how you might introduce yourself. At this moment, because I'm sure that shifts as well. <laughs>
0: it does, it does. And, and part of how I would introduce myself is also noticing my gratitude in being in this conversation with you. It it Names are sometimes casserole, right? They trap us into the mythology of stable identities. But identity is diasporic, it's traveling, it's fluid. So I name my gratitude in... As part of my name now, my gratitude in speaking with you, but Mm. you could call me Bio Akomalafe and I, I think my deepest relationality is my relationship with my son and my daughter and my wife, they anchor me to this world and to the communities yet unfolding that hold this supra conscious conceptualization of agency that I rudely call post activism. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and I feel more and more identified or named or appellated or summoned and surrounded by these bodies. And this is how I would like to introduce myself.
1: I welcome that and I love that. You Thank you too. so much.
0: Thank
1: you. I I was watching a talk that you gave. I don't remember which one it was, but you said something that really deeply hit home for me. And you said, my gift is my disruption. And it resonated so deeply with me because My entire life, I've always felt like I was disrupting things. (laughs) I was the one always causing my parents angst and questioning all of our traditional religious upbringings and why do we have to do things that way? Mm -hmm. And that doesn't make sense. And I think that carried over into the workplace with me where I was always the one saying, let's try something different. Mm. I don't know. We've done that before. Let's do it this way. Mm. And... Yeah. and But that orientation also has often left me feeling like I don't fit anywhere. And so when you shared that, it felt um, a bit like an awakening to lean into to that gift rather than away from it, which is, I think, what many of us are taught to do is to go with the flow and mm-hmm. do what everybody else is mm-hmm. doing. Mm-hmm. And now... Now I'm a mother. I have a five year old who often shows up in the world a bit differently yeah. than his peers. Yeah. And at first, when I started to notice the ways he was different, it terrified me yeah. because i people can be mean, and society can be cruel to those who are different and And then I started to notice. And started to pay really close attention to him and try to notice the things he was noticing. Try to get down to his angle of the things he wanted to see. He he used to, we used to go on all these walks in the neighborhood, long walks when he was little. And mm. he would always want me to pick him up so he could see at a higher angle what the house looked like and he wanted to go on the side and see what it looked like on the side and the other side and then go to the other side of the street so he could try to get a glimpse of what it looked like from behind (laughs) and so you'd see me walking with him just constantly trying to (laughs) hoist him up in in different positions but anyways the reason i'm sharing that is that i know you also have a son who I believe is five years old six, as well? Six now. Six now. He turned
0: six a okay. couple of years Yeah. Ago. Yeah.
1: Oh, okay. Happy birthday, Tikeya. <laughs> and I know you've talked about him being autistic. Yeah. And I think I would just love to hear your perspective. First, just even how you think about that, both in terms of, the gift and the challenges that it presents. And then just even on a practical level, like how you show up as a father trying to support your son Mm. in this world that isn't always very appreciative of his gift or accommodative of the challenges.
0: Thank you for sharing that sister. And boy, do I know in my bones that Let me put it this way. Belonging is sometimes oversold. As this destination, we all are either in the process of arriving at or have already arrived at. Mm -hmm. So from the luxurious views of settlement, we look out upon everything that hasn't settled everything that hasn't that doesn't fit in as either the fugitive or the vagabond or the insane right yeah so the treatment the intervention here is the hand of hospitality where hospitality is an inclusive a deployment of inclusivity of the technology of inclusivity dust you up shape you up give you a name render you legible. If belonging is intelligibility, then what that concept fails to account for is all that it is indebted to, all that belonging is indebted to. Belonging is indebted to flow, right, right? Things flow, and if things flow, belonging is just a temporary concatenation of that flow. Belonging to be fully itself needs to scatter into the wilds, needs to travel away from home. Sometimes it's only when we're away from home that we know home for the first time, right? If we arrive so with such great finality, belonging as a project of utopia, then it becomes troubling, it becomes an invitation to travel, right? Again, right? when the dust settles, then you're only kicking up more dust. <laughs> <in> the- <laughs> so I-, I guess where I'm going with that is is to acknowledge the gift of disruption. You pointing out something different and that leading to a annoyance from those around you. Yeah, that's fine. That's what attends disruption, but we need it anyway. We we need to disbelong in order to become bodies. I guess disruption is how the world feels into itself, how it feels its own embodiment, um, and maybe that's a good way to speak about fathering care, or rather, being fathered by care. Yes. <laughs> because there the lines don't travel unidirectionally. Uh, there's something chimeric about Kea showing up and being my teacher. And boy, I really wanna be I really wanna be his student. And I'm picking up my books and notes and I'm sitting with all the things that KI is offering me. A practical example, since we're, we've named the idea of practice as something grounded, or even though I do not think the ideational is any less practical, um, is Kea, who is six years old, has had changing patterns of fixations with what you might call a special interest. Mm -hmm. He, He adopts a motif, a theme, a story, an idea, and he sticks with it. And the entire world seems to have to cohere around this idea for him to function. So at one time, it was Christmas, and every morning he would wake up and say, Merry Christmas. He was saying this in April, in May, unironically insisting that it was Christmas. I remember taking this in stride and just going with the flow. But at some t- point, I started. it started to get exhausting and scary. Would he be able to navigate a world that is not Christmas if he's stuck on this idea of Christmas? And somehow that fear crept up into moments when I would chide and seek to control and gentrify him. I would literally say to him, oh, it isn't Christmas, right? It isn't. Christmas is December 25th. This is an agreement. Everyone knows that this is Christmas. And then he would say, but it is Christmas. It is Christmas. It is Christmas. I remember a friend of mine, a brother of mine, saying to me, I think what you're doing is you're gentrifying him. You are dragging him into your own practice of the world as linear time, as already there. You're not noticing this autistic perception that sees time as not still and simple, but a practice that, that where chaos lives is in the ecotones of a worlding practice where the world is still being made, right? It's still being made. There's nothing simple about tying your shoes. The neurotypical consciousness-driven mind might insist that there's nothing to it. You just bend down and tie your shoes. But through autistic perception, he has to travel through the Milky Way. The Milky Way is involved. There are principalities and powers involved in that seemingly simple practice. He has to travel through forests and galaxies and microbial realms and bacterial systems in order to tie the shoe. There's nothing simplistic about it. Recently he woke up his scenes his moved from Christmas and his special interest is now Halloween in India. <laughs> 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 so so he woke up two days ago and he was bemoaning the fact that it was morning. He was just He wouldn't get out of bed. I'm here in Maine. I was in Minnesota a while ago and in LA before that. But my wife puts me on the phone and I'm with this in a video call and he's there. He doesn't want to move. He's immobilized by the shocking surprise of daylight. He's shocked by it and like it's day and he wants it to be night. And he's crying that he's lost night. Something creeps up again. And I find myself wanting to explain to him that this is reality, brother. Like, this is it. There's, you you can't stay in bed and day follows night and night follows day. That's the way it is. That's That's it. That's it. Just get out of bed and do something. Do something else, son. And then I catch myself in the middle of that. And I notice that, again, there's nothing simple about the fact that Day follows night and night follows day. Nothing simple about that. He lives in a different way. This is artistic perception. Normal pathy is what Professor Aaron Manning will call the neurotypical, right? It's the performance of consciousness as elimination from the welter of experience, right? Experience exceeds consciousness. Experience exceeds awareness. Autism is just how we mark the unnamed God and the unnameable and unspeakable God, the subterranean cosmology that undergirds our claims to dominance and finality, right? We can dwell mm-hmm. with consciousness, but consciousness is a grid, is a framework, and it cuts so much out. But my son, is he lives where they still are stitching time, he knows the factory, the Global South factory, where time is still being manufactured. And he has to navigate that. So there's nothing simple about this. He lives in the noise of things. How am I meeting that is that I'm learning to, to be his student. I'm learning to retreat from rehabilitating Hmm. learning to see him as the flashing up of a politics that is an invitation to s- sit still with the trouble right and the way that i this happens is, is untold is on it's not is, i can't say that hey do this every day this doesn't arrive in terms of an already consumable set of practices that anyone yeah. adopt. it 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 really is a meeting of the monstrous and how you're marked and interrogated and stripped apart by this monster is the gift and how that shows up, not in individual lives, but I speak in terms of territories, but how that shows up is, is still yet to come. So I'm, I'm sitting in the heat and intensity of, of my autistic child. And just to say very quickly that it's not his autism. This autism has no face. It is an intensity. It enlists bodies, right? He's proximate to this intensity, just as I am, and we all are, to some degree. So that, in a sense, we are enlisted in the performance of this alterity, this subaltern reality or materiality. One way to go about this is to stamp it out, is to put a Band-Aid on it, is to use corrective measures, see C- cognitive behavioral therapy. This is not to demonize that. Or we can close it up. We can attempt to close it up. We can stop him from flapping his hands. We can invite him to mask and to portray himself as belonging. But I wanna hold space for the disruption of belonging and the promise of monstrous entities
1: oh there's so much there yeah we often approach our children in these ways that are inherently telling them that who they are is not okay yeah. right Absolutely. when we try to say conform in these ways yeah. behave in these ways yeah i can certainly i often think of my son as my guru <laughs> he's my best teacher i have grown more as a person being his mother than anything else I have ever consciously engaged in or practiced Indeed. or anything. I know that you are also unschooling your children. And I wanted to dig into that a little bit and just understand why you made that decision and just how are you even managing it?
0: <laughs> Here's a trick. There's no, there's no, there's no, there's no ABC. And in a sense, we aren't unschooling our children. We're unschooling ourselves. Say more. <laughs> we are the ones that went to school. We are the ones that participated in a civilizing ethic that sees disciplines as pure and removed and categorical, that sees the the uh, convening of the citizen as modernity's greatest treasure and pro- and project that sees progress and growth and development as the only ag- algorithm for creating sociality so we are the ones that learned implicitly how to think about each other in terms of grades and performances and stuff like that not our children <laughs> my daughter is my daughter often thinks that everyone is open in the ways that she is she she doesn't know how to she doesn't know how to receive instructions let me put it out <laughs> right like it mm. it was such a thing growing up in the world that i grew up in to receive instruction i'm not demonizing instruction either we do need it and it's part of I think a parenting process, but there's something about receiving instruction that made the re- the recipient pass. It was this passive place where instruction was just dumped. She doesn't know how to do that. She's constantly negotiating and navigate- navigating and introducing things into the mix that make me ponder what is my parenting f- for? <laughs> <laughs> I cannot control you. I've, I don't, I'm just kidding. But he, my, my daughter especially, calls into question this burden of inheritance that all the child is to do is just to inherit the legacies of the previous. And she's constantly departing. Right. So in, in that sense, we are we're being unschooled. We're meeting our children in in various ways. And this is not a a statement of purity or or any fundamentalism here. I do not think of what people might call unschooling or self directed education as a thing apart. Like here is schooling as a stable set of practices impervious to that which we shall now call unschooling, which is also stable, other, exquisite, and removed from the previous pathological one that we called schooling. I don't think yeah. of the world that way as old, new. Things are a lot more messier, messier than that. So, for instance, uh, Aletheia wants to explore traditional schools, not so traditional. She's doing some online classrooms now. What we have just tried to do is say, if we need to have a conversation about you departing from this structure, you don't need to graduate. You don't need to stick with the integrity of this structure. See yourself as a fugitive. You can go in and out. If you need to depart from this, let's have a conversation about it, but explore, go ahead and explore. And we've often Mm -hmm. found ourselves on the other side of things saying, go to class today. And then we turn to each other, that's my wife and I say, I thought we were going to do this. This is supposed to be unschooling, right? (laughs) This is, but things are messy and and never straightforward in a world that is entangled and entangling. So, this is some of our practices where we feel that it's our vocation to treat children as cosmic disruptions and and to situate ourselves there alongside them to accompany this disruption instead of putting the disruption in the family way, right? So if cracks often become canyons, flattened out, rendered instrumental, if even disruption can become instrumental to the familiar, then we need a different kind of accountability, an accountability that is seeking and non-fundamental, that is still finding ways of becoming embodied.
1: This is such a difficult thing to navigate in today's society that doesn't accommodate disruption, even on a very practical level of I have to get my work done and I can't play with you right now. <laughs> and there's always a constant negotiation of that. And I'm lucky in some ways we we have a 100% outdoor Waldorf school that my son goes to and it's probably the closest thing to unschooling in our area. <laughs> as a sort of place to send him um and it's i hear what you're saying about you write about this so much about how we need to let disruption into our lives we need to let it change us and take us and yet we're still so stuck in a system that doesn't allow for that that's You got to get your work done you got to do this you got to produce you got to make money to somehow support your family and it's just yeah i think this is just something that i'm constantly trying to navigate because i think i'm also very cognizant of the ways that i don't want him to get sucked into the old ways of thinking and the old paradigms of thinking But then when I examine that closer, it's another way of my exerting my control over him too, right? And so it's a very slippery concept yeah. to me. I'm constantly wrestling with it in my brain.
0: <laughs> I don't think you would ever we will ever find our place in a it, uh, we'll ever find ourselves in a controlless environment, right? You know, just think about the irony of trying to create an environment without control. Let's control the circumstances in such a way that there is no <laughs> control.
1: <laughs> Someone somewhere <laughs> is doing that. <laughs> it.
0: it's, it's that. It's that we are not there. This is why I often say that, that when we frame the world as, or transitions as a space between stories, right? And this is a phrase that has become cultural, Countercultural, like when people say, Hey, we are in a space between stories, right? The old yeah, is,
1: time between worlds. Yes, yeah, a
0: time between worlds. It's a very poetic way to speak about transitions. The old is receding and the new is coming. There's something risky about speaking that way because it upholds a very and- andro- androcentric or anthropocentric um, presumption that the world can be cleanly demarcated along the lines of the old and new, and that somehow we have access to this betweenness of things, where we can, with our wonderful magisterial gifts, say, hey, this is the new coming and that is the old. It reinforces our separation from the world, that we can adopt, we can stand on a perch and literally see the world flowing by. But I want to think of change as something monstrous, as something a lot. This is what Gilbert Simondon will call transductive operations, right? French philosopher, inspired Deleuze, inspired many of the thinkers that we deeply respect. But he was considered fringe until the 2000s and 2020 when his seminal work on the pre-individual, was translated into English, but I digress. He would speak about transductive operations. And this is a different way of thinking about change that notices how the old needs to be part of the new in order for the new to be itself, right? There isn't some pure departure. Let's get rid of control. Like You will find it performatively sticky to get rid of anything. Think about the black... Communities in America and their quests for recognition, right? And then think about the analysis by the great Sadia Hartman, noticing what she calls hypervisibility. That somehow, in our quest for visibility, we became invisible, even to those who cherish our visibility. How? <laughs> you might say, How? Explain this. There is this theatrical, almost performative and performative in sense of the theatrical or histrionics in the United States, where I'm at now, that kind of coddles this inclusivity idea, like our work is to bring the minority to our space of power. And so there is a lot of attention and focus on the minoritarian right? There's a lot of focus on the excluded. And with focus comes attention, and with attention comes visibility. But there's something about bodies and their transgressions, bodies continually traveling and doing other things that is not noticed through that prism, that is not appreciated when we see only through the lens of inclusivity, because inclusivity is rehabilitational is rehabilitative, it wants to rehabilitate, to dust you up and make you legible. So in a sense, by noticing you, I have failed to notice you. Do do you understand that? Mm. By, by, By fixating on you, I do not notice you. I have adopted you, I have eliminated your tentacular bodies, your long body, in order for you to fit within my regimes of visuality. So in a sense
1: because it's still based on separation because
0: it's still based on separation and it has to fit within that procrustean bed that grid work that might be amenable to state algorithms right in order for you mm-hmm. to get seen by our legislative wins and victories then you need a name then you need an ID then you need all these rituals you need to be adopted and you need to be co-opted And to be co-opted and to be adopted is to fit in. And to belong Mm -hmm. can be very dangerous. (laughs) But, But that's the idea of how things could, some really disappoint our ways of speaking about them and the invitation to do other things with that.
1: Yeah, I've been thinking about this idea of separation a lot as I've come to understand the what many call the, the meta-crisis. Yeah. There are many of us right now trying to make sense of the meta-crisis or the interrelated existential global risks of our time, whether it's climate change, biodiversity collapse, ocean acidification, AI risk, nuclear war, add them to the bucket, right? And there's been... They've, it's the space of people working in this space. It's been called many things, the sense-making space, liminal web, game B and a large focus of the work has been centered on this question of how can we become more wise, mm. right? Dan- Daniel Schmachtenberger says, we have the power of gods but lack the no, wisdom to steward, to steward that power. And I'm curious what you think about this. and. Is wisdom even something that we can cultivate? Like, ahead of shit hitting the fan?
0: (laughs) Is wisdom something we can cultivate? I think so. I think of wisdom as errancy. E-R-A-N-C-Y. Errancy. When things spill away from their containment, right? This is how I think of wisdom. As the road refusing cartography, the the road says, I'm not going to be an instrument to you finding out how to get from A to B. I'm going to spoil the plot and move to the swamp. Or the road just bends its back and refuses continuity. And we know this in Africa. We have lots of potholes right? (laughs) So our roads have lessons (laughs) embedded in them. I think potholes are wisdom is the pothole and the pothole is wisdom. I think the crack is wisdom. Wisdom is what happens to us when we've come to the end of everything we know. Wisdom is a, a way of the world saying we don't know and countability isn't always accountability. Just because it counts doesn't mean it's accountability. Just because we can name it, just because yeah. we can hold it, accountability isn't always,
1: measure it, there you write go, it down. Isn't yeah.
0: always accountability. I should write that down. I've never said that before.
1: Um, <laughs> I like that. I'm writing it down too.
0: <laughs> accountability isn't always, hold on folks, if you're listening, isn't always accountability. So, Cultivating wisdom seems to me to be the work of picking seeds at the cracks. Like the place where the world flashes up, where the prosthetics that have supported the thesis of modernity belch out new spirits and stuff. The the way that we often relate to these moments of failure of some kind is to try to imprison it, to throw it in the asylum, to pathologize it, to reduce it, right? To heal, we would often say. And I'm speaking with noticing that there are many ways that people come to the subject of healing. But yeah, the cracks proliferate and give birth to new kinds of realities and new possibilities and that's wisdom wisdom is a disability wisdom is Mm. crippling in how it shows up it's a crack it's god smiting the thigh of jacob and saying you have a new name because we've wrestled and i think the thing to do is to convene an attempt to sit with these cracks, these openings, as wisdom, as invitation, is probably to dance and sing and cook around it, to convene a classroom around the cracks, around disability. And this isn't some poetic, abstract work. This is historical. There's precedent. Uh, Precedents for for this. There's a there's a lot of. The people, visionaries, thinkers, scholars, grandmothers, grandfathers that have, in small homeopathic doses of refusal, convened worlds around cracks and where cracks are monstrous figures. Whether it's an autistic child or it's a, an ecotone or a moment that has no explanation, by sitting with these moments, we make possible new choreographies, new worlds. We, we breach the sensorial monoculture that inhabits us and arranges us. And by doing that, we are brought to new materials, right? Disability is the invitation to new materials.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think I have some idea of of what you're talking about. So we've, my partner, my husband and I have been through quite a lot in the last six years, really ever since we got married. Mm. (laughs) We've been through miscarriage, Mm. years of infertility, and all the treatments and things that we did to try to overcome (laughs) that problem. A very challenging pregnancy for Mm. me a birth where I almost didn't make it through and my son was also at risk. My son being then born with a cleft lip and a cleft palate, which was a crack, a disruption, a uh, surprise, not something that we prepared uh, for. And requiring two surgeries before he was one and then getting diagnosed with an eye condition that also required a third surgery And then being hospitalized four times before the pandemic even hit for various respiratory illnesses. And at the same time, my mother having a stroke and being in and out of the rehab center in the hospital and then getting a cancer diagnosis and passing away two days later my grandmother passing away three months later, like it has just been a series of one after the other. And you can still hear it in my voice, (laughs) still carrying some of it with me, but it has changed me. It has changed us in ways that I could never have engineered. (laughs) I could never have gone on some retreat and done some growth work and come out the person that I am and still evolving into. And so I think about this question a lot, right? Like for those that don't have to, (laughs) that maybe haven't been thrown so many challenges how do they, how does that shift happen in in people whose maybe lives are much more comfortable than that? Is it, I like how, and I guess it goes back to this question of who do we need to become as a people in order to start moving towards a direction of a more flourishing future? And what is our role to play in that because so much of what we're doing so much of many of us that are working in spaces of social impact are trying to engineer it right like we're trying to do the policies and do the changes and come up with the vision and then go try to make the thing happen and start eco communities and do and 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 I'm not like all these things are beautiful I'm not I'm not downplaying any yeah. of these things but I'm exploring this, yeah, this idea of how do we become who we need to become and is that something you can intentionally engage in or is that, excuse me, something that just happens because of what life through (laughs) you.
0: Thank you, sister, for sharing. That must have been hard to do and even harder to live through. Yeah. And we are co-participating in this frothing explosion that is the world in ways that means and suggests that your suffering is my suffering. We may have met for the first time here, but we are connected through this expanse in a conversation that is molecular and spiritual and ongoing. And we're in this together. And that helps me notice something. I I heard this from a sister, Alixa Garcia, a couple of weeks back while in LA. And I heard it through my brother, Resmaa Menachem who told me this, that Alixa said that the caterpillar does its best to resist the butterfly. I wonder if it's eating and gobbling things up is an attempt to to stave off the prospect of becoming, (laughs) like, oh, I'm supposed to melt into this goop and become something else. Oh no, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to add to my weight so that I can, I could keep from. (laughs) But that becomes part of the ritual of dissipation, right? It feeds that. So that in a sense, one might say that what we are becoming cannot be fully known. Cannot ride on the backs of awareness. I know in many of our, the business of transitions and social change and people doing precious work, we stabilize awareness as the thing to return to. We, we speak about bringing things to awareness. Let's bring mm-hmm. things to mm-hmm. awareness. Uh, where, But the thing is, awareness is a subtraction from experience, experience is not reducible to awareness or consciousness. The world exceeds that. The world exceeds the things that we can engineer and manufacture so that the world only shows up partially, can only be discerned partially. We do not know and that upholds or supports the thesis that, or. You know, it, it adds and nourishes this conversation we're having today that I put under the banner of post-activism in which everything we think we're doing to bring about new realities might actually be the crisis. Our response to the trouble might be the crisis. However well-intentioned we feel we are, right? You can be greatly oppositional to certain things values concepts practices you can hate it with your gut and still be part of how it materializes right you can be anti this and anti that and anti this and still be part of an assemblage that exceeds consciousness it exceeds awareness so i to the question of what are we becoming what do we need to become ironically I'm attracted to the illegibility of that, the non-legibility mm. of that, the partiality, the non-intelligibility of what we're becoming is what attracts me actually. I'm hesitant to name, this is what it means to be this or that, or this is where we will be in the, by the year 2050. Because I don't know if it were fully articulable, we might just be reproducing what we already know in the hopes that we've left what we already know, right? (laughs) That that is, in a way, to come around to the experiences you have. That is why crip-istemologies or crip-ontologies or this perspective from disability Mm -hmm. is deeply... Is at the heart of what I do and what I think about. It's it's that there's something about crip imaginations that shock thought into producing differently. And there's something about crip practices, if you will, or surrounding crip ontologies. And by crip, i crippled, and in ontologies... The way that we think about nature and the world and transitions and humans and agency and identity and all of that there's there is in fact this gravitational pull to surrender in some sense to the wormhole to the black hole and and all our conversations about what happens on the other side feel subservient to principality this primordial being this Becoming—that is the world, right? I guess for me, I don't want to fully name it because in naming it, I render it. I, there's something violent about naming it. What word?
1: It feels like the. Yeah. Yeah, I think it. Uh, I'm no, sorry no, no, to no, interrupt. No. I just. It. It almost. It feels. Like the Dao that cannot be named. It's like if you name it, you're reducing it to something that can be named and put into language, which is not what life is.
0: It's just reactive then. It's reproducing yeah. what it already knows. If you can say, these are my people, and this is not a pathologize saying, these are my people, my people beforehand. But, but if you know your people... In that way, you might be part of an apartheid structure and you might be upholding that apartheid structure in, if, if it's already known, even prior to the encounter. There's something fugitively gener- generative and generous about a universe that is constantly mixing edges, that is constantly spilling through things, right? That means our people are always yet to come. We, if you yes. know them beforehand, there's something violent and extractive about them that kind of feeds and nourishes the paradigm that you're trying to escape, right? I look across yeah. the room and say, these are my people and those are not my people because of features that appear to senses to my senses of visuality the way I see the world, and the way I approach these concepts, these images, then I might be stuck. And that is why the poet who is deafblind, Jonathan, JLC is his name, that's why he says to people that I pity the sighted. I pity the sighted. I pity those who can't see. Because the conversation about racialization becomes takes on a different texture when you're blind. Uh, <laughs>
1: yeah. How do yeah. you know your
0: people? See, it 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 seems then that even victory becomes ableist. Disability shocks us into reexamining the positions that we've adopted and the traps that we've become
1: part of. Yeah. It this for me goes back to the conversation that we started with around like normal what is Mm, normal mm. and if your child is not on a normal trajectory and they're not normally (laughs) developing according to what someone his his or her age should be able to do by this age something is wrong something that you need to fix as a parent you need to do something about this (laughs) exactly
0: fix put them in a family way quickly yes developmental milestones and all of that. Just I'm with you. I'm with you the whole step of the way. Yeah.
1: I love what you were talking about post-activism. And I love, I love what you wrote in an article that you called what I mean by (laughs) (laughs) post-activism. And you said, quote, post-activism, the concept that informs my notion of making sanctuary is a matter of eruptions and eruptions, breakthroughs, cracks, fault lines, discontinuities, blasts, splits, rifts, ruptures, seismic shifts, world-ending openings, miracles, strange encounters, and the yawning maw of a monster. It is my way of describing the flows and possibilities that proceed from the moment when things no longer fit. Mm -hmm. And Mm. I've been thinking about this idea a lot in the context of how one might, and I'm not going to say solution because I don't believe that there are sort of solutions, but how one might respond to the meta crisis or the sort of place that we find ourselves in and I suppose it goes back to much of what we've been talking about, but there's this question that just keeps coming back, which is, what do we do? Yeah, what do, we do? <laughs> and there's moments where I think I figured it out and then that goes out the window and then it's like, oh, no didn't think about this thing or something else. And it's this constant. Yeah. And maybe that is what it is. It's a constant renegotiation of what you do. It's a constant evolution. There is no path. There is no sort of thing. To figure out. There aren't multiple paths that you just figure out. And then people figure out what they're doing on those multiple paths. I don't know. I just, this question of what do, what we, do, do? we do? I wonder how how you might respond to that today in it's this a moment. very interesting
0: <laughs> question and i've had over the years many responses to that each antithetical to the to the previous <laughs> um, no this is not what we do okay this is what we do. Oh, no, okay no i okay now i get it now i get it and the morning after i'm like no i haven't got it at <laughs> all. i'm still stuck in the middle and maybe Asking the question is a creature of being in the middle. Maybe it doesn't deserve an answer. Maybe the violent insertion of an answer or assertion, as much as an insertion, an assertion of an answer, some distant response to the question that we haven't found yet, maybe that is just as much troubling as the question's liminality and seeking quality. Right it's mm. it's like the question how do we live is how living happens right it it's the, the question is the performance the question is the ongoingness of things what do we do is a gift of a question right it means that suddenly thought is enraptured with itself It becomes ecstatic and then it's examining its own presuppositions and it can invite questions like that. It's just that we don't have a culture that celebrates questions as questions. A question means incompleteness. Now we have to respond with an answer. Now we need a textbook that offers a resolution. But what if the question (laughs) is just by itself a gift what do we do now is an invitation to what you might say, I don't know, of some sort, a traveling, a ticket to board a plane that has no pilot and no, no service and no destination in mind, <laughs> in the <in a> <laughs> But when I speak about post-activism, I'm not actually offering people what to do. I am challenging the doing of the doing, right? I am re-rendering agency in terms of what the English grammar might call the infinitive, right? The infinitive is usually, it's, the, it's when a word a verb, a word hasn't been conjugated right? It hasn't been, it hasn't been situated within a sentence. So, Mm -hmm. and it's usually known by the word, by putting to before the word, to be, to do, to eat, to sleep. Those are infinitives. To re-render agency in terms of an infinitive, in terms of the impersonal, is to suddenly be in a space where we recognize that we're not the only ones in the room. That we haven't been the we're not the social agents that modernity in in, in inspires or thinks us to be. That's only a, a that's like a pixel pretending to be the entire screen. Yes. We're, we're not the isolated forms of enactments or agency or, or doings that we think we are. So by resituating this where we are speaking about how lines of continuity become shocked by something that flashes up and then suddenly new questions become possible. Why do we send our children to school? Why do we go to work? This is what the pandemic did, right? Why are we going to work? Why do we frame this? And this maybe could not have been possible if something did not flash through and break through And disrupt. So, post activism Mm -hmm. is not a repudiation of activism, it's a resituating of agency, a reframing of agency that might invite experiments and different transductive operations with the hope, not with the guarantee, but with the hope and the longing and the gesturing towards new worlds.
1: You said something. Again, I'm not sure where I got it from. I'm somewhere, some talk or some something you wrote, but you said agency is a matter of crossroads, mm-hmm. not highways. And I think we believe we have agency to change the direction that all of life on this planet is going. Those of us who are working to create positive change in whatever ways, See, almost there's this sense of oh, this responsibility. Like we humans are the ones destroying mm-hmm. the world, so it's up to us to save it. Mm-hmm. And and I've been thinking about like how that's just not no. true. Like not the destroying part. Yes, we are destroying have, it I in many ways. To say about
0: that too. But go, sister. Okay.
1: Okay. Yeah. Go ahead, go ahead, <laughs> I guess I, I'm just thinking like we, we often think we're the most intelligent species on the planet. And then I think about the trees in the forest that network with each other in ways that are incomprehensible to us that maintain the health of the soil and the community and take care of each other without speaking a word, right? So there's this sort of this idea that I've been playing with, which is, is there Is it that we need to connect to some greater intelligence that exists all around us to direct us in our direction? Is that part of the path that we need to walk? But yes, but let's go back to what you were going to say. No,
0: it's in the same spirit of what you're saying. And it's a partial response to your question. Always partial. I'm writing about circadian rhythms and light in a new essay and how body patterns were and how we sleep is changed by technology, right? It Mm -hmm. used to be the case that the, uh, that one could say that the nature of light and dark was a little bit simpler (laughs) right when it was dark (laughs) it was dark when it was light then you had light this is what invented daylight
1: savings
0: (laughs) (laughs) we need to save the light such a technology such a conceptualization would be impossible now and now we're feeling it it's a gift it's a it's the burden of the past that we're trying. It's furniture from the past, the lingering past that we're trying to make sense of, like saving daylight. We don't need to save daylight anymore. I just need to switch on the light, right? I can continue <laughs> work. But it was a thing then to think about saving daylight because the technologies for keeping the sun in the sky, so to speak, were scarce and far between. But now... We can create eternal light, if you will, by comparison. We can keep the sun in, its, in the sky. We can keep it there. But the consequences of those technologies is that our bodies begin to respond to that, right? Our bodies start to, to act differently. Our rhythms change. And then things become a little bit more Murky, murkier, right? And maybe this is my way of noticing how bodies and their technologies are entangled and entangling, right? Which brings me to a roundabout consideration of reanalysis or reanalysis of this story that we hear all the time that humans, as if humans are a thing apart are destroying the world,
1: right? Mm.
0: Humans have never been... (laughs) We've never been separate from our technologies around us, from microbial secretions, from ancient longings that are still inhabiting the thick now, from possession, from the agency of texture and color and light and sound and tangential things that you might think, yeah, this isn't really part of how we act. Where we act comes from within. You're either a bad person or a good person. Agency is here. But agency isn't here. Agency is between, right? We are not individuals. We are individuations, right? And we don't inhabit stable ontologies. We are called by ontogenesis, what Simon will called ontogenesis. The world is constantly being created so that to say that humans are destroying the world is to speak from the side of one's mouth. There, there's something that is compelling about it, but there's also something quite risky about stating that. Yes. Right? It doesn't notice... The contributions of the world around us. No, I'm not saying that everyone is to blame. That's how people might hear this. I'm just trying to say it would be a mistake to remove the human as a thing apart from the world in order to point fingers at that human, while failing to notice that removing the human is what gave birth to the crisis in the first place.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you get. Yeah, it's funny. It's I, I understand this concept, and yet it still comes up in yeah. my language, and it, so it's still in it's there human. in my brain. This idea that like humans are the ones causing yeah, all the problems in the world. It's still like it's deep... human.
0: It, it's, yeah. it's what I tell people about a consideration of slave history, and there are many slave histories. A consideration of the transatlantic slave trade. Would not be complete, and I don't know that I'm reaching for completion here, but in my from my where I sit, it would not be robust enough if it did not take into consideration the role that sugar played, this post humanist entity played in this whole saga. Right? If we return to humans acting upon other humans, then we're already late,
1: yes.
0: Yeah, I think you get that. So I don't need to say more about that.
1: Yeah, it reminds me, what you're talking about reminds me a lot of what I've been really enthralled with lately, which is Nora Bateson's work. She talks about this a lot, this idea of pre-emergence. We talk so much about what's emerging and what might emerge, but it's almost like it's too late by then. The things have been cooking in the soup for a long time.
0: Yeah. yeah. Nora Tiny. is a dear sister. Uh, uh luminous dominating I say darkly because I don't want to treat the light as if it's some precious thing. she's a powerful invitation and a constellation of new thought. yes, happy to that she's my sister
1: something else that I've been thinking about a lot that I wanted to touch on with you is language. <laughs> I think in many ways, language can be a deeply limiting way to understand the world and, and communicate. And especially the English language that is very good at separating and labeling things, for example, but that doesn't often have a lot of words to describe relationships between things. For example, I grew up in a urdu speaking family my father's from india my mother's from pakistan and my parents spoke in urdu to us most of the time and they wanted us to learn english and we went to school and we practiced english and we basically spoke back to them in english and they spoke to us in urdu um, but in urdu we have different words that describe relationship so for example my grandfather on my dad's side is dada mm-hmm. and my grandfather on my mother's side mm-hmm. is nana and and i understand that there are many indigenous languages that also have more words to describe the relationship between people between things and so the question i've been wrestling with is that the reality is, is that at this moment in time english is the dominant global mm-hmm. language and so I wonder, like, how can we move towards a more interconnected worldview, if that's even the right word, towards a more thriving planet for all life if our language is constantly separating us and everything around us and disregarding relationship in the ways that we literally talk to each mm. other?
0: I think language is part of the language. Of, of course, this needs to be said. I think a language isn't a human thing. You might say, "Um, oh, I don't get that, but humans speak languages. And yet to reduce the speakability to humans is to lose sight of all the ways that our ecologies shape that phenomenon. Think about the ways that the infusion of social media is literally changing expressibility today. Yeah. Right. How we express ourselves is becoming coterminous with the technologies around us, right? Emojis and LOLs and all of that. So that, I, maybe you might have seen a meme that might have been inscrutable to you a decade ago, but today a new meme just crops up on your Twitter feed and you immediately know what is being said by that yeah. even though you've yeah. never seen that before. You're co-participating in something that exceeds the ways that we think about language as a human product. It's post-humanist. It's animist, Right. If we think about language as animist and ecological, if we think about sayability, expressibility, intelligibility as partially composed, humans are enlisted in it, but not quite the, the warp and the woof of it, then it is possible to articulate with great hesitation and humility a direction or to tell a story rather, let me help myself a little bit. It's possible to tell a story that resituates transitions and new worlds and new possibilities, not as a function of language, but as entangled with the emergence of new ways of expression, right? I'm trying to say if language is ecological, New ecologies would need new kinds of expression, new languages, new modes of speaking. So when you ask, what can we, you didn't say, what can we do? If we are trapped by this dominant language, then what's there for us to do? Considering this incarceration, how do we even begin to move Mm. beyond this captivity and i will come back again to the gift of disability right in 196 in the 1960s a french visionary called fernand deligny have you heard about him no started a project fernand deligny was part of a movement that saw fascism as expressed in the efforts of the psychiatric hospital to rehabilitate autistic children and schizophrenics, right? It was impossible for them to see them as a part because the Nazi regime in France, the Vichy regime was in some sense, reportedly killing people by taking them to the asylum. Just taking people that did not fit its vision Mm -hmm. of the stable citizen and dumping them in the asylum. And people died of hunger there, malnourishment. Thousands, tens of thousands of people died during this time. Autistic children were incarcerated in the asylum Especially those that didn't speak. So people started to say, along with jean that the hospital is ill, which is a profound thing to say. The hospital itself mm-hmm. is ill. What then? So Delaney took like the Pied Piper that he was. I think he wouldn't mind me calling him a Pied Piper. He took children to a, a rocky region in the south of france called Cévennes. and there in that place parents psycho uh, psychologists people brought their non-speaking children non-verbal child, autistic children to delini and they lived in an experiment called an attempt he refused to think of it as utopian right even though aspects of utopia would creep in. But the, the attempt was to see if they could do without language. It was permitted to speak in a camp. The children were not rehabilitated, educated, reformed, nothing. They were merely accompanied. This was the intention. Let's accompany these children. Let's follow them and trace their paths and do that and go wherever they want to go. This is just really difficult to do. And so they started this project called tracing. They would literally trace out the meandering movements of the children in in those regions. They would trace them out. And there are many maps. Uh, there's a book that has all these. It, they're not maps to find your way. They're maps to lose your way. <laughs> um, would trace them out and just follow them, accompany them. And then they would try to do without speaking. And, the, and the, in, the idea was maybe language is getting in the way of us noticing what some of these children are noticing, not to romanticize mm-hmm. them as saviors or heroes, right? But, but maybe there's something about disability that breaks the sensorial trap of language Maybe there's something felt and urgent and immediate that is accessible in the non-speaking child. They would follow a child, a teenager like Jean-Marie, one of those children. Jean-Marie would go around in circles, just keep going around. And they found out one day that Jean-Marie was accidentally... Right. I don't think he was conscious of it in the ways that we speak about awareness. But his body was tracing out the movement of underground water. Oh. He was literally, his body was choreographing underground water that nobody else could listen to, could hear, mm-hmm. could feel. Other children would trace out the the old trails of goats in a field, the ancient trails that had been covered over. There was no sign that, that but no, they, would yeah. dra- they would trace them out of old goat trails. This, and so Delany started to notice that there's a sense in which languaging things gets in the way that they were already in touch with these things at a molecular level, they were tracing these things out. so there was something phenomenological and post-humanist and animist and powerful about seeing language not as this representational thing. It doesn't, language doesn't represent the world. Language is speciated within the world as an aspect of worlding, but it is not some grid framework through which we must translate all our experiences. And then it arrives in this and that that is what I want to offer here to in response to your question. Language is wilting and constantly morphing, right? We might speak about the domineering quality of English, but there is a sense in which English is animist, not maybe in its concepts or in the ways that it arranges verbs and subjects and objects, but it is animist not in content, but in form. Every language is an animist vocation. It is constantly wilting and changing at the edges. Think about those moments of encounter when the English people came to Nigeria, the present day Nigeria, for instance. They left with pidgin English, realised forms Mm. of their language. Those spaces of encounter took aspects of English and created new Englishes. There isn't one English, for instance. There's pidgin English, there's different forms of this tongue and expressibility. Languages and how. You might even say something about how we develop accents is a form of ecology, a place making ritual. Language has never been a new grid form or grid framework mm. through which we must translate everything. The question isn't really how do we find new languages? It's probably how do we get around language? How do we stay with those moments when things are unsaid or unsayable as a form of of meeting the new, the potentially new, and the exquisite, as Delini found out in the 60s.
1: That's a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that.
0: My pleasure. Yeah,
1: yeah it's it's what's in between, the spaces in the between. The
0: spaces in between often. that are not how we speak about, instead of, you know, something anthropocentric, it's the transductive flows is a flow
1: yeah oh i wish we had so much more time i i could talk to you for so many more hours <laughs> but i know we are coming to the end of our time so i suppose the last question would just be who would you want to platform or who would you recommend to come onto the platform mm.
0: oh there are many people that come to mind now the many folk that I would highly recommend at this point. I think you wanna to...
1: it can be more than one. Okay,
0: or two. okay. <laughs> why did I assume that it has to be just the one? <laughs> you wanna speak with Craig Slee, who is this English brother? He is confined to his chair. And he's a great philosopher and I think a powerful speaker to these times. I would also recommend Kay Williams. And I will send you their emails Kay Williams, Craig Slee, Cole James, Austin Smith. Beautiful folk.
1: Amazing. People. Yes, people I love it.
0: Sophie Strand. <laughs> you might know Sophie Strand already. Yeah. Uh, Many others don't come to mind, but they're on the tip of my tongue. I live in many villages. Um, Yes, I will send you their emails. Highly recommended. Yes, Beautiful.
1: Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank Thank you, Bio. If you liked the episode and want to hear more conversations where we explore how a more beautiful world might emerge, subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app, or the Entangled World Pod YouTube channel. If you loved it, support the project at patreon.com forward slash entangled world. Thank you for listening and for coming on this journey together.